Midweek. This is episode 119. If you're out there keeping score, my name is John Mark DeRoe, and I am joined by Brad Brown. We are inside of Four Stream Studios. We are absent one Jonathan Hafes. This week, he is actually out uh, preaching at a youth retreat right now. And so, just prayers for him and prayers for Holly as she's at home with all the children all week by herself. I guess uh, I guess Levi went with Jonathan, actually, to the mm-hmm. retreat. But, Brad, how are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm just loving this Alabama heat. Yeah, yeah, it's it's nice, huh? It was, uh, we went up to Wisconsin, you know, for the 4th of July and had a reprieve from all the humidity and the moment that we cross state lines back in Alabama we stopped to use the bathroom in Huntsville and when I stepped outside it felt like I was walking through a literal blanket of yeah. heat like you could actually feel the heat like you were physically walking through it yes yeah I take n- normally I take about 12 showers a day <laughs> just out of necessity yeah, but uh, no, but seriously, did you have a good fourth? How, how was everything with you did, guys? Well, you know, it's my birthday. Oh, right, right. So what'd you do? So did what we always do, which is barbecue and fireworks. Fantastic. Yep. Fantastic. That's and great. And cake and ice cream. Good, good. So that was pretty much it. What about What about you guys? Well, like I said, we were up in Wisconsin, so we had a bunch of stuff planned with Ashley's family. There was uh, like a, this petting zoo slash like feeding zoo where you could drive through in your car and feed deer, ostriches, alpacas, like all kinds of animals. So we did that one day. That's fun. Ashley and I went and saw Dave Matthews Band live in concert, not once. But twice while we were there. That's right. Dave Matthews Band played at Alpine Valley Amphitheater. And we went the first night. We were not planning on going the second night. And we had such a good time. And we loved the set so much. We knew that the second night would be a completely different set list. So we went back. Yeah. And it was amazing. Well, I love it because it's just such a snapshot of who you are as a person. Which is... You're never lukewarm. You you're either right. cold or you're hot. So you're right. either disinterested, don't care, maybe a little <laughs> anti about something or you love it. And you know what? I really appreciate that about you. Yeah. Well, I think it anyways, I we'll get to that with my album of the week, but I do oh, okay. think that revisiting Dave Matthews band has been a real treat mm. for me just in my life being 34 years old and and reflecting on when I was younger, a teenager, and trying to learn how to play drums and be a musician in a band. Oh, yeah. So How mad do you think Jonathan is that he's not here to talk about <laughs> Dave Matthews to, for the to, next 15 to 20 I minutes? I got to talk to him on Sunday about it, and he was real psyched for me. He's yeah. se- he has seen them live, I think, a couple of times. So. Well, I feel like i got to start listening, or I'm going to be left out. So Yeah, you should. You should. Much to Tanisha's chagrin. <laughs> oh, is she and not a... And her dis well, it was in her DMB? email. Okay. It was in oh, her email. Okay. She she said that uh, when she was her uh, her dislike towards Andy Squires. That's who's, right. Who's coming to the church soon? Have you told her that Dave Matthews <laughs> is coming to do a concert <laughs> at the church pretty soon? Yeah. Well, I guess let's just move on. We don't have any emails this week, so let's listen to some music. JM's album of the week. 
if I go. Yep, you guessed it. Based off the fact that I just saw Dave Matthews Band twice, guess Big, what I've been listening to nonstop? Big shocker. Dave Matthews Band. This track is called Bartender. This is probably my favorite Dave Matthews song, and because they are so unpredictable when it comes to their set lists, I saw them twice and didn't even get to hear this song. They've only played it twice on this tour that they've been on. This is off their 2002 record called Busted Stuff, which was sort of my introduction into DMB when I was that age. You know, I got a finally got a nice drum kit when I was like 15 years old, and I dove into this album. I bought the CD, then I bought the live album that they put out after this CD, and I just fell in love with this song, with the songs on this record. They played a few of these live, and it was just it was such an amazing, amazing uh, experience for me. As I kind of went back to my childhood a little bit, I actually had. Carter Carter Beauford, the drummer, I actually had his uh, instructional VHS tape when I was a kid. It was called Under the Table and Drumming, and I used to watch that all the time. But you know what's funny is I was really thinking a lot about that, that tape and everything that he talked about, and the thing that I loved the most about it, just from a drummer or musician's perspective, is that the way that he approached instructional drumming was actually from the context of being in a band so it was less about like here's all the things that you need to do do these rudiments here's all this cool stuff that i can do as a drummer that you can't a lot of times you can't even apply to playing in a band Hmm. and it was all about here's this song that dave wrote and this is the drum spin that i put on it and there's all these elements, there's all these things that you can use, all these tools, and this is what I decided to do creatively with this song to add something to it. And that really blew my mind when I was a kid because I was really, you know, I was in my first band and we were trying to write our own music and it just it gave me like a toolkit to work with because it wasn't just about how fast he could play or what kind of crazy things he could do with like two kick drums and two hands and all this mm. stuff. It was just about like what is what's good for the song and what makes sense in the context of, of music and playing with other people. So that's what really blew my mind. So I was just, cool. all of those things, I was just thinking about all that, reflecting on that time. So, you know, when you're young like that and you have so many hours to to play if you're a musician you can just sit on your instrument for hours and play it was such a formative time for me so that this you know dave matthews means a lot just in growing up and learning how to play music and learning how to play with other musicians but uh this record's awesome busted stuff and this bartender song is like an eight minute eight and a half minute jam and it just gets super intense the lyrics are amazing too dave just dave had a really good day writing this song um, so definitely check check that out if you've never heard Dave Matthews Band. I don't know if you'd want to start with that album. Uh, it is a good album to start with, but you may want to go back earlier and probably go to Under the Table and Dreaming or Crash, kind of their first two records, or um, their third studio record, which I'm blanking on right now. 
before these crowded streets. All those records are amazing. Pretty much every song on those records are solid. And if you see them live, they will play a mixture of any of those songs. So, wow. anyways, yeah, it's they're they're nuts, man. And they're getting up there too. Carter's like 64 years old. Dave's like 55. Never stop. Yeah, they don't quit, man. It's awesome. So yeah, that's my album of the week. Busted stuff. Dave Matthews Band. I've never, you know, I've listened to the hits, but beyond that, I haven't really listened much. So I might, I might give it a whirl. Well, you should. They don't even really play their hits. <laughs> <laughs> you like you know how you know how Radiohead like doesn't play Creep and that was like yep. the song that kind of made yeah. them commercial acclaim. Dave Matthews Band rarely plays Crash into Me. Like that's their big song. I think they've only played it twice on this tour out of like 30 something shows or wow. something like that. And then even their other big songs like The Space Between, that was a big hit for them. Every Day was a big hit like commercially speaking. I mean, they don't really play those songs that much. It's crazy. Yeah. Huh. So, yeah, I always appreciate that about an artist that will just, they'll do the deep cuts, man. That's right. Pull out the deep cuts. But yeah, dude, you'd like this song, Brad. I was going to try to get it to this crazy drum part <laughs> that he does. It's worth it if we can get to this crazy drum Definitely, part. I'm feeling that. Seven minutes in. Here it comes. Yeah, dude. Wow. Yep. I'm assuming they don't play with the play. One of the best live bands I've ever heard. Seriously, they just absolutely murdered it. All right, Brad. You may not know this, but one of Dave Matthews' nephews was in the choir that's composed the intro for Bradford's wow. Book Club. Amazing. Small world. Welcome to Bradford's Book Club, a segment of Shades Midweek that has grown dear to many listeners. It's a time where I recommend a book for you to check out. Are you ready for the book this week, John Mark? I'm ready. Sorry, I just took a swig of water. I apologize. Good timing. The book that I'm recommending this week is a book that is worth your time. It's titled The Logic of the Body, Retrieving Theological Psychology by Matthew A. Lapine, forward by Kevin J. Van Hooser. Let me read a little bit from the back cover. Do not be anxious about anything. When it comes to stress and worry... That's all we really need to say, right? Just repent of your anxiety and everything will be fine. But emotional life is more complex than this. In The Logic of the Body, Matthew A. Lapine argues that Protestants must retrieve theological psychology in order to properly understand the emotional life of the human person. With classical and modern resources in tow, Lapine argues that one must not choose between viewing emotions 
exclusively as either cognitive and volitional on the one hand or simply a feeling of bodily change on the other. The two stories can be reconciled through a robustly theological analysis. In a culture filled with worry and anxiety, the logic of the body offers a fresh path within the reform tradition. Now, that was a lot, John Mark. Yes, that's a ton. I don't know, I don't know if you tracked with all that. And th- there's so much to say about this book. You know what would be incredible is if we would be able to have a conversation with the author. That would be pretty awesome. I don't even know how we would pull that off. Maybe just contact them and see if they could do a f- quick phone interview for an hour. Yeah, but I think I would have to do that through Twitter, and I don't know how they would respond, if they would even be interested. So, But it would be really cool. Yeah, so we are being facetious right now. We actually did get an interview with with the author of this book. Brad did reach out to him personally, and he was kind enough and generous enough with his time to grant us an interview. And Brad led this interview. This is definitely up uh, Brad's alley right now, just all in his wheelhouse. You can always email us at midweek at shadesvalley.org. We'd love to. Uh, to hear your thoughts on Matthew Lapine's work. Maybe you've read it before, or uh, maybe you're going to read it after uh, you hear this. So um, I hope you enjoy it. Brad, did you, did you want to add anything else before we cut to that? The, the only other thing I'll say, and we talk about this in the podcast, is that this is a dense book. This is sure. an academic book. So one page is 75% footnotes. <laughs> <laughs> So there is a lot of content, a lot of really good and dense content in this book, which I think reflects the nature of the subject matter. We're talking about theology and we're talking about psychology and we're really diving into these disciplines and thinking about them. So um, although it is not a light or easy read, it is a very fruitful read. And so you can look at the chapters and see which ones interest you. And, you know, if if you get it and want to talk through it, I'm always willing to talk through it. I know Jonathan would be willing to talk through it as well. So, yeah, I'll say that. But have have any uh, has Bo read that book before? Any other counselors here that you have talked with the book about? So I know that the Armisteads have it and had a brief conversation with Ashley about it. And she really enjoyed it. And she said she wanted to talk more about it because yeah. there were just so many things going through her mind. And I think that's what this book does is it really gets you to think and to challenge maybe some notions that you've held about our emotional life. But I think that uh, if you will take that journey, you will come out the other side with what I would argue is a more biblically and theologically robust view of our emotional life. Mm. That's awesome. Well, we thoroughly enjoyed this interview with Dr. Lapine. I hope that you do as well. Thank you so much uh, for listening every week to Shades Midweek. So here it is, Dr. Matthew Lapine. Well, I am so excited about the episode that we have today because joining us via phone is Dr. Matthew Lapine. Uh Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. How are you doing? Doing real well. Thanks for having me on. Awesome. 
Well, I, I uh, first uh, came across uh, Dr. Lapine because in 2020, I became interested in psychology, and I was reading a book called The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk, and as I was reading it, as a pastor, I was just thinking theologically about some of the things that he was saying about trauma and our autonomic nervous system and sure. neuroscience. And I was thinking through all these things and I was like, man, I wonder if there's someone who's reflected on these things theologically. And then mm. not long after that, I opened my email and I, see, I get an email from Lexham Press uh, for a book titled The Logic of the Body, Retrieving Theological Psychology. And I said, yes, <laughs> this is exactly what I've been looking for. And uh, not only that, but the foreword is by Kevin J. Van Hooser, who is one of my theological heroes. It, it just felt like a divine gift directly to my email box. <laughs> mm. um, so, mm. um, uh, Dr. Lapine, would you uh, begin by maybe just telling us a little bit uh, of your story and how you came uh, to write this book, The Logic of the Body, where you're thinking about psychology and theology? Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I remember... Uh, I think it was probably 2007 or so, uh, saying that I would never do a PhD in systematic theology. Um, <laughs> and then uh, I ended up actually, th th this book comes out of my doctoral work uh, for a PhD in systematic theology with Kevin Van Hooser, uh, who is my theological hero too. And <laughs> I'll say, um, you know, Kevin has meant so much to me. Uh, not, I mean, Prior to meeting him, just by his books, he, he's taught me to love theology in a way that um, that I didn't think was possible. Um, but also then just you know to to be able to work under him and to to spend time with him, it was a real privilege. Um, but you know, this project that I'm working on was a sort of coming together of three different things. Uh, the first was in 2004. I was dating. A girl named Molly, who is now my wife, um, but she pulled me aside to break up with me um, because she had had some childhood struggles with obsessive compulsive disorder that had come back um, that summer, and she basically was like, "Look, I, I'm I'm too messed up to be in a relationship, and and um, you know it's best for both of us if if I take some time." and um, And I said, "You know what? Let's." figure this out together and uh so we walked through a path trying to um figure out uh, what helped with obsessive compulsive disorder we didn't call it then uh, that at the time um about halfway through the process i realized that oh yeah <laughs> that's what this is mm. but um you know at the time i was in seminary uh and training to be a pastor um didn't really know where god was leading me but i had some theological background, and I also had been trained a little bit in biblical counseling, and um, it just it it was a situation where um, I really didn't have the theological tools to come to terms with what I was dealing with. Like it mm. it created a mental tension in my in my head about like what was helping with the obsessive compulsive disorder, and um, 
what I thought was supposed to change people from my theological training. <laughs> and so um, that question really stuck with me for, you know, 15 years um, wow. by the time I got around to this project. Um, but the second thing that contributed to it was I, I after I did my MDiv, I, missed, I, I kind of was playing around with the idea of doing a PhD and I, kind, I wanted to do a PhD in philosophy, um, especially the history of philosophy, because what I began to realize is that philosophy uh, helped me understand myself in a way that that other things hadn't. Um, mm-hmm. That there's a whole history of Western thought that um, I'm a part of. Like I'm swimming in that stream, but I, I didn't really know where my ideas had come from. And so um, uh, I, I started studying philosophy. I actually studied. I took a, a systematic theology degree at Dallas Theological Seminary under Doug Blunt, who is a Notre Dame grad, uh, PhD in philosophy. Um, and uh, so I took all of my uh, major courses from him, <laughs> even uh, a couple of, uh, um, uh, what, what do they call them, where you sort of make up what you're doing anyway. Um, guided so, study uh, or something? Yeah, independent study. Yeah. yeah, there you go. Guided study. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> um, philosophy became a passion. I wanted to do a PhD in philosophy. And I actually only applied for two theology programs when I um, when I uh was looking at PhD work. Uh, one was um, uh, one was Trinity, where I eventually went uh, with Kevin Van Hooser, and mm-hmm. I applied just because of him. But um, so the third strand is just my love for the biblical text. Really, that's where it started. But then, um, you know, sort of drifting over to my love for biblical theology and the way the text was interlinked with each other, which eventually birthed the love for theology. And so I wanted to bring these three things together in some way. And so my my dissertation um, was helpful be- because it taught me that psychology had existed within the within the discipline of uh, theology for a long time, mm. <laughs> and we'd actually just forgotten um, that sort of subcategory of theology. And uh, um, what I found was, especially in the psychology of Thomas Aquinas, there were some incredible resources for dealing with the sorts of problems that I had had way back in 2004 to 2007. Hmm. And um, so this project was sort of just kind of a, a light bulb moment for me that Thomas Aquinas actually could help me in retrospect with helping my wife with obsessive compulsive disorder. And so it's a very personal project, um, but it, it's also one where I can see the sort of the hand of God guiding me through the various byways because it, this uh, this is theological, it's psycholo- psychological, and it's philosophical. All three of those strands are, are intertwined here. It's interesting because I'm I'm seeing that it's almost impossible to do theology for the church without having some sort of philosophy or psychology in the background right. to some degree. Would you mm-hmm. Would you agree with that? Yeah, well, I, I mean, I think that the the thing to say that more plainly is that all of us have a psychology in the background. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's mm-hmm. like you know, people tell me that it's like. Uh, you know, how can you study psychology? And I'm like, really, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to become aware of what psychology I already possess. Mm. I, I already have some thoughts about what a human person is and what thoughts are and what feelings are and what emotions are. And um, So we already have those ideas and we're bringing those ideas to the biblical text. Um, and so studying psychology means that you just make your beliefs, uh, you become aware of your beliefs, mm. but then you also... Um, subject them to scrutiny and and 
you know, as a as a scholar, what what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to encounter reality, like I'm trying mm-hmm. to uh, be accountable to the way the world really is, um, and that it's God's world and He gets to say how it is. And um, so, yeah, I, I think pastoral ministry has been impoverished by the the way that the theologians have not talked about psychology for the last 200 years, really since it became its own discipline in the 1800s. Um, we've sort of locked into an, um, a, psycholo- a 19th century psychology, um, which, has, uh, which is very disembodied, uh, treats emotions as if they're almost like uh, thoughts or quasi-choices, and uh, so we're directly responsible for them. We, we don't really pay attention to the way our bodies are formed and the way that our emotions uh, sort of come, spring up out of those, almost like a, a weed could spring up out of my garden. Um, and so uh, one of the things that's lost when we don't evaluate our psychology in that way is this sort of middle category of things that we don't have total control over, but we have some control over. Um, mm-hmm. So I like to use the gardening metaphor because that captures it nicely. I, we have a uh, fiddle leaf fig tree that we have been trying to kill for quite some time. <laughs> they are divas. But yes, yes, they're yeah. divas. And so we, we finally moved it outside. We're just like, it, it's sort of like putting it halfway to the trash can. <laughs> and um, what's happened is just miraculous. It's, it's just, it's as alive as it's ever been. It's growing new leaves and all that. But um, we don't have control over the fiddle leaf fig tree. But what we could control is where we put it. And that meant that we cultivated life out of it. And that's a bit like we're cultivating our bodies, but we just haven't had a psychology which has really awakened us to, I think, that biblical theme, um, the, the way that we have a, uh, a responsibility for, for governing our bodies as, as, as cultivators. Mm. Yeah, that's so good. And uh, in your book, uh, you address a, uh, a lot of these issues. You talk about theological psychology and I've heard you speak on the five myths about mental health, and I think you can correct me if uh, I'm wrong, but I think what what you're doing is condensing some of what you've done in the book, and it you're like you said, your book is a dissertation. It's academic. It's it's very dense. Yeah. There's a lot of great content, and so uh, with with your uh, talk about the five myths about mental health, I feel like you condense some of that content and and present it in an accessible format. So that's what we would love to hear you talk about today. And really what we want to spend the rest of our time doing. And then what we will do is probably just interject with random questions. Yeah, that's great. (laughs) You know where the five myths came from is uh, I, I was, I taught a class on mental health at our church and they asked me to speak to our, our college group, which is, it, it was that it's a large, a very large group. Um, but they assigned a uh, staff member to me um, so that when I came up with my five points, uh, she could tell me that's not clear enough yet. Like you need <laughs> to shorten that by half or use easier words. And um, it was, <laughs> it was a really helpful uh, uh, exercise for me in learning how to be clear uh, to college students. So, uh, Let me read the myths. Yeah, uh, and you, you want me just to jump in after I to start explaining them as after I read them here. Yeah, I think that'd be great. Go for it. Okay. So number one is you are alone in this. Uh, number two is depression and anxiety are simply a spiritual issue. Number three is what you believe erases your emotional difficulties. Number four is depression and anxiety are simply a chemical imbalance. 
And number five is you should be able to change your emotions right now. Mm. So first, number one, you're alone in this. Um, one of the horrors of mental illness is, is just this way that it leaves you feeling alone. Um, it's hard when we sort of see the, the sort of happy, clappy Christianity around us and the sort of veneer that sometimes forms on the surface of people's um, lives. It's hard to imagine that other people know what it's like to be us, especially when we're in the, in the depths of, of uh, mental health challenges. Mm-hmm. Um, but the problem with that is that it, it actually um, it, uh, pushes us deeper into ourselves and deeper into isolation and, de- uh, and away from the sort of vulnerability, which would actually be healing. Um, it deepens our shame. And so it just makes it, it pushes us further away from the, than, uh, from health. Uh, rather than toward it. Um, so one thing is that we, we don't know how prevalent it is, and the other is that we have false Im- images of people that we, we know or, or uh, think we know. Um, mm. But, I mean, the stats, like when I gave this talk, it was fall of 2018, COVID was not a thing. Um, wow. And even then, the, the stats for college students over the last decade had been just uh, skyrocketing. So by fall of 2018, you had two-thirds of college students saying that they felt overwhelming anxiety. Um, Four in 10 said they were so depressed it was difficult to function, and one in 10 had seriously considered suicide. Mm. So um, all of those things have just, um, (laughs) have. I mean, the the curve has just steepened since uh, COVID has hit. And so, I mean, what what I did with them was I basically said, okay, look down your row, and let's say there's 10 people in your row, Four of them would have checked on this survey. I'm so depressed it's difficult to function. Like that makes it more concrete when you can look in the faces of people and say, wait a second, all of these people seem on the surface to be perfectly fine and yet they're not. Um, So that's the first one. Mm. Well, can I um, I ask a a follow-up question with that? Yeah, yeah. This is a a, a very, I'm sure there's a very complicated answer, but I'm curious to hear uh, what's your take on why mental health issues are rising? Well, man, do we have two hours? <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, we do. I'm not sure you do, but we yeah, definitely do, do. We're here for it. <laughs> well, so let me just, I'm going to sort of start abstract and then maybe get a little bit more concrete. But, you know, when you read the creation story, you're you're reading the sort of, foundation of the biblical story the question is will we live with god in blessing or will we not um what happens in genesis 2 is the blessing is described and what happens in genesis 3 is the blessing is turned into curse um and then if you look at the rest of the biblical story there's all sorts of instances where god covenants with his people to renew blessings um and so uh what's interesting about the genesis story though is that it what God does is he, he plants a garden and he sets us in there to be his undergardeners, but he gives us relationships. Uh, there's a relate, the primary relationship is us and God. Like we're dependent on God. Everything that we have, all of creation, all of our relationships are all gift. And so, um, everything is meant to be enjoyed as gift and to channel our worship and joy back into the giver. Um, so that's primary. The secondary is that, that, you know, the man and the woman had a relationship together, like there's mutuality and, and oneness in, in, in the midst of their difference. Uh, and that, that mutuality was fruitful, like it, it produced children. Um, 
but so you see a horizontal relationship that's formed and then you also see a downward relationship which is um you know uh, the man had a fruitful relationship with the uh with the earth out of which he came so um, it's interesting the woman comes from a man and their their relationship is is bonded that way the man comes from the ground and a relationship is bonded that way um but both of those relationships are for fruit. So if you read Deuteronomy 28, for instance, it talks about how God will bless um, uh, bless them with children and will bless their breadbasket and so on. Um, it's those relationships being renewed. But I think um, the reason that I'm, I'm talking about this foundationally is because um, those secondary relationships of each other and the ground um, are really, really important for how we function as human beings. Like they're important to human flourishing. And if you read, like, Johan Hari's book is really interesting. It's called Lost Connections. Um, he highlights those two aspects that um, your sort of run of the mill depression, anxiety, mental illness is so driven by a lack of flourishing in your relationships and a lack of flourishing in meaningful work. Um, so, I would say we're living in unprecedented times. I mean, I remember I was born before the internet. So I remember when it was invented. I remember going to the internet and just typing in words to see if there was a site, you know. Um, but so I remember the way that communities functioned before the internet. And the way that we live now is so radically different from that. Um, we are all uh, sort of sole proprietors of our own brand, trying to make ourselves attractive or agreeable to other people. Uh, but we all also are uh, sort of endless networkers in terms of how we view our friendships. And uh, that's exhausting. Mm-hmm. Like th- th- that puts a ton of stress on us to be worth people's time and attention constantly rather than having stable covenantal relationships with people. Mm-hmm. And so um I think we're, we're living in a lot of ways in a culture which itself is becoming is becoming more and more toxic because we don't have the sort of bounded, finite, flourishing relationships that we were meant to have from from creation. Um, so, I mean, you could read a lot more about, um, you know, from like Gene Twenge and and um, uh, what's his name? I'm picturing him right now. The coddling of the American mind, Jonathan Haidt. Mm. Um, about how uh, social media and the, and the internet have have impacted us negatively. Um, the stats are out there, but I'm giving a theological answer to that. Our our secondary relationships that that are part of human flourishing have have broken down significantly. You know, I recently I had read Andy Crouch's new book where he reflects on technology, and Crouch is always so good mm. whenever he talks about technology. And then shortly after mm. that, we had a a church camping trip. And I've made jokes from the pulpit about how much I hate camping. But what <laughs> what struck me about camping was just the lack of technology that we had. So yeah. we had a fire that we all gathered around. And that's where we all cooked. Yep. That's where we ate our meals. Uh, we all had tiny tents. So there really wasn't much to do in the tents. And so mm-hmm. uh, in the evenings, we would hang around outside the tent. It would get dark outside. And so everyone would gather around the fire, the place of light. And it just struck yep. me the rhythm that camping brought. And I think just caused yeah. me to reflect and see the reality on how our devices, how the internet mm-hmm. is shaping our our rituals, our, our practices, and we don't even realize mm-hmm. it because we're just so caught up in it. No, that's that's perfect. I, I and Brad, that uh, um, 
that makes me think of, I think it was Neil Postman, but I can't remember now. But he was talking about how technology has unintended consequences. And he, what he talked about was uh, central heat and the way that it changed people. Um, so if you think, I mean, it changed architecture, for instance, where you have, instead of like a, a, instead of small floor plans, you can have these giant sprawling floor plans because you can put the, the ducts in. But one of the big social changes that it did is it actually took away those sort of moments where you're all just gathered around the fire. Yeah. <laughs> because if you don't have central heat, you're just getting close to the heat source to stay warm. Um, but I think fire is one of those things that I mean, it's a core tool in my discipleship belt because it's one of those excuses that is still acceptable for us to all just sit around in silence with each other. <laughs> yeah. um, and and sometimes the silence is as powerful as, as, as the speech, but it's it's a place where, where people just feel comfortable um, opening up about what's really going on in their lives. There's no other distractions. You're just sort of the introvert's dream. You're just sort of staring into the fire, you know. Mm. But I, I, I think it, I think it matters. Like I think that that is a, a fire is a gift uh, from God and something that we ought to lean into as a as a relational um, bonding agent. So. Mm. Yeah. So in in one way we're more connected than ever through our devices and the internet, but in another way we lack the deep connection that we need to flourish as human beings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would I would even maybe say it stronger than that. I think that we. Um, we are connected in a way which fundamentally undermines uh, healthy connection. <laughs> um, I like that. So, so we're not connected it, because that, when you when you see yourself as a as a brand and when you see other uh, friendships as networking, mm. um, you're not uh, you're not situated for human flourishing. Like yeah. relationships require mutual sacrifice, and the mutual sacrifice that comes from a sort of exclusivity. Like I, I, when I made vows to my wife, I said, forsaking all others. And that doesn't just mean that I'm not having sex with other people. It means that I'm listening to my wife's cares and concerns in a way that I would not for any other woman. So like there's a, mm. there's an exclusivity to the emotional bond to it. And we need friendships that have those, those sorts of exclusive emotional bonds where we're caring, especially for these people. Um, We've, we've gone too egalitarian in our concern, um, which, again, we need to be a good neighbor for, for everybody. But um, there is sort of spheres. There's family, there's clan, there's tribe. There's I mean, the, the way uh, Israelite society was, was uh, set up, for instance, was um, designed to give you a hierarchy of concern and, and, and where you should put your attention first. That's so good and I think so important in a conversation about mental health. So number one, you're alone in this. Yeah. Yeah. Number two, um, depression and anxiety are simply a spiritual issue. So I, what I'm envisioning here is you have a situation. Um, let's say we're talking about anxiety. Um, let's say you have a situation where you're sitting across the table from someone and they, uh, or you're bringing your anxiety to them, let's say, Mm -hmm. um, what you'll find on the other side of the table is often sort of a, a dilemma. Like, uh, is this person going to give you compassion or correction? Right. <laughs> and, and in what order? Um, so anxiety uh, can be seen um, as sinful unbelief. In fact, this is the, the old John Piper quote. Uh, the root cause of anxiety is a failure to trust all that God has promised to be for us in Jesus. Um, 
if anxiety is just that, I, like I'm not saying that there's none of that involved, but if anxiety is just that, then anxiety deserves correction. And so the myth that I'm trying to say is it's mm. not simply that. Um, it, it's not just that feelings come from thoughts in an A to B relationship. Uh, if that were true, we would, I mean, it, it would, we would be too ashamed to open our mouths about our anxiety. Um, I think what helps me in this, and, and this is part of the book too, is that, um, you know, Jesus felt, uh, uh, sadness and anxiety in Gethsemane. Um, that, uh, you know, he, he had, he had something going on in his body, which was so intense that he was sweating drops of blood. Um, so mm. I think the truth is that depression and anxiety are complex. That it's not just one component. There's thoughts involved. There's sort of spiritual dimension where you put your faith and where you put your hope. But there's also the physical components. Um, and, you know, especially our sympathetic nervous system. Um, so there's there's lower brain areas that, that do like quick judgments about what's happening in the world. Um, we have a very intense way of, a uh, very complex way of judging the world. Like I, I can be anxious about the state of my, my relationships, for instance, without even realizing that I am anxious about it. Hmm. But that unconscious then can trigger my sympathetic nervous system uh, to make me feel upset. So um, that's hormones, that's neurotransmitters like norepinephrine. It's, um, uh, you know, it reroutes blood away from my stomach to um, major muscles and, and my lungs. Um, and, you know, sometimes the, the rerouting of the blood can cause all sorts of stomach problems. So there's, there's ways that your body, let, let's call it the climate of your body. <laughs> the climate of your body can grow stormy um, from, from going through difficult things. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's the social component, like how secure am I in my relationships? What was life for me like a child? Um, you know, one part of my life story is that, um, you know, th- there was just a, a lot of difficult adult relationships with uh, for her in her life. And she, she felt like she had to perform a lot of the time and um, felt like uh, uh, she was constantly under scrutiny. So she didn't have really warm attachment with a lot of adults in her life. Um, those things can can affect you and can infect you uh, affect you for a really long time. Um, so I, I recommend pastors, especially, to read uh, stuff on child development, um, like the boy who was raised as a dog. It's a really powerful mm-hmm. book that helps you understand a little bit about where people are in terms of different starting points. Um, but my, my point is, um, anxiety or depression are not uh, simply a spiritual issue. It's a it's a complex psychosocial, uh, biological thing, uh, mm. spiritual thing. Yeah. It's it, so therefore, I mean, we need to be people that can sit in the midst of complex problems and issues and not offer spiritual platitudes or simple spiritual solutions. Like if mm-hmm. you would just have more faith than X. Yeah. It, it adds iniquity to injury. So if someone's coming from from a really anxious place because, you know, they were, uh, you know, ag- abused or neglected as a child, and then you just tell them, yeah, you're not believing the gospel well enough, um, it really puts them in a deeper pit than they were before. And it sounds like you're promoting, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but really a biopsychosocial model of the human, would that be fair to say? Yeah, yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I think that I'm... I'm trying to give it a more robust theological framework. Okay. So, um, 
but but yes, absolutely. I, I'm I'm trying to point out the, the various dimensions of what it means to be human. Uh, to be human, so dependence on God is uh, we are dependent rational beings. That that's what we are. We're, we're made to be dependent on God and dependent on others and dependent on the land. And um, so there's there's different aspects to uh, to what makes us who we are. But the primary one is 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 our relationship with God. But um, understanding those secondary relationships can really help us. Uh, so, for instance, my wife, when she had anxiety, when she had OCD, it very, very quickly moved from OCD uh, fear about harming others to fear about whether she was genuinely a Christian, mm. because uh, she started to get anxious about the anxiety um, whether whether someone who was a Christian could have these sorts of uh, uh, sort of life dominating anxiety. I think that puts people in a different, a difficult situation if you don't understand where it's coming from. I mean, there's so much to talk about there. I mean, that's so helpful to, to go back to the myth. Depression and anxiety are simply a spiritual problem that has definitely been a misunderstanding that has been present in many evangelical churches that has mm-hmm. caused a lot of harm. And to even say it more strongly has allowed abuse to continue mm-hmm. and, and other horrific yeah, yeah. things. So I just think that's such an important point and, and you know, something we could have an entire podcast around. And and a quick comment about the other side of the coin in Matthew six, I think that Jesus says that the opposite of anxiety is seeking the kingdom. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I'm not trying to sort of commend anxiety as a way of life. What I'm trying to do is I'm trying to say, we pursue sort of radical, life-giving, joyful faith that we desire together in community with a full acknowledgement of the way that that um, you know our own in, our own uh, inabilities and the the wounds and 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 scars and marks that we have from our life experiences shape us. And part of why I'm saying that is like I don't I think it's a myth if you allow um, you know, the most anxious person in the room to dictate everything that you do. <laughs> but it's also a myth if you make the most anxious person in the room feel like um, their capacities don't have anything to offer the body. Because um, I think that, uh, you know, it's been my experience that uh, struggles with mental health challenges have been uh quite transformative in their capacity to pull back uh, sort of selfish and prideful ambition, both in me personally and in our communities. Like um, Mm. mental health challenges are such a gift to our community because they help us to really look around and and see people with empathy and and to um, strengthen the bonds of the community. But we also need... um, sort of courageous faith, which, which, uh, steps into the calling that we have, um, uh, from our Lord Jesus, uh, to make disciples of all nations. So there's a, I'm trying to say, I'm trying to give a communal context for the fight for that sort of courageous faith. Now, is there anything else that you want to say about this myth or you want to see what behind, see, no, do we good. want to see what's behind door it's number good. three? Yeah. Door number three. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so myth number three is what you believe erases your emotional difficulties. Um, so 
basically what we're saying here, I had a friend who um, was attacked by a dog as a very young child. And he spent most of his adult life um, before I knew him uh, where his body would react and panic whenever he heard a dog barking. Um, and the thing is, is he could tell himself dogs are safe, dogs are safe, dogs are safe as much as possible, as much as he wanted. But just reasserting that truth to himself didn't actually fix that reaction. Um, Jonathan Haidt uh, analogizes it as we're like a man riding an elephant. Um, and the idea is that our bodies have a sort of independent source of rationality and momentum that, you know, when I hear that, my body decides something like, okay, we're in danger without me saying, okay, we're in danger. <laughs> the body sort of makes that judgment on its own and takes off. I mean, it's, if, if you were on a horse and the horse got spooked, it's the same sort of thing. They're, our bodies are responsive to our environment. Um, but then also the habit of that responsiveness continues for a long time because of neural pathways that have formed in us. They're like uh, ruts in the lawn uh, if you dr drove on like a muddy day or something. Um, but um, that means that the power of thinking is limited uh, in two ways. That first, it has difficulty in getting all the way down. So um, if I, he couldn't just fit, fix himself, for instance, when he said the dog is safe, the dog is safe. Um, but also then that the power of thought is slow in terms of how it uh, helps us. Um, so it could take a long time to fix something that's sort of a deep rut in our body. Um, in his example, actually, he was able to overcome the fear of dogs by, let's say, a, a joint operation of mind and body. <laughs> so on the one hand, he, he said dogs are safe to himself. On the other hand, he went and held his, his brother's new puppies. And um, a new experience, a sort of uh, um, playful and safe experience with dogs actually cooled his reactions down quite a bit. And so it's, it's interesting how um, there's a sort of formative logic between faith and practice, between our theology and our, and, and our um, lived experience, that um, the words that we uh, live by frame our experience, but then experience uh, tends to saturate those words and give us meaning to them. Um, mm -hmm. So I could say God is a, a loving father, but if you've got no experience with a loving father, that still seems quite abstract, or or maybe even hard to sort of get your get your head around or get your uh, your understanding around. Um, but um, with my wife, she had a, a counselor who has been just uh, such a powerful um, example of Christ's love and really a father figure to her. He's an older man, mm -hmm. and um, it has helped her theologically, to really uh, come to feel safe with God. Um, wow. And so uh, it's not just what you believe that erases your emotional difficulties. There's um, uh, experience has a role to play because our bodies have a sort of logic and momentum of their own. So wow. That's the title of the book, The Logic of the Body. That's where it comes from, that, that insight. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's so much there to talk about. I mean, I just think about the reality of the gospel and the truth of Christianity, that this is not just information to absorb mm -hmm. through the right facts and then you'll grow, transform, so on and so forth, mm -hmm. but rather speaks to that embodied presence that we talked about earlier in yep. new relationships when we're joined together by the Spirit to love and, and serve one another, and that it is in this new mm -hmm. context, empowered by the Spirit, that our minds 
and our bodies <laughs> uh, yeah, are yeah. renewed, redeemed, restored. I think that's so powerful. Yeah, and that's wh- that's why it's a vital part of the church's mission to incarnate the love of Christ, not just to say it. <laughs> um, I mean, the, it's interesting that the the um, uh, you know the, the body of Christ metaphor. I, I love every when I teach on the church, I always have people read the body of the body metaphor. From, uh, I think it's First Corinthians twelve, Ephesians four. And I always throw in Colossians 1 and 2 because it's there and, and you may not realize it's there. Um, but uh, that metaphor communicates so much about our, our mutual reliance. Um, and in a lot of ways, our churches are sort of content with an intellectualized form of Christianity where we live just like everyone else does. And I think what we're, we're doing, Romans 12 was the one I left out, um, what we're doing is we're, we're overlooking our responsibility not just to do things for Jesus, but to be uh, Jesus uh, to each other and to the world. Uh, we're we're, we're uh, um, outposts of the kingdom. You know, if you think of Acts two, the message comes to them, and what's the what's the next thing that happens? Uh, you have the reversal of the idolatry in Jeremiah, but you also have the reversal of the injustice of Jeremiah. In Jeremiah, there was a lack. The justice was a lack of care. And at the end of Acts 2, you immediately have a reversal of that, where everybody is sharing everything in common, and they're rejoicing together and eating together in their homes. And that's what happens when the gospel lands on a community. A community begins to live that way with each other and teach each other what the love of Jesus is like. So with this, to go back to the myth that you're talking about, what you believe erases your emotional difficulties— I mean, is is that getting at uh, something like uh, somebody, if they think about their anxiety, for instance, is saying, okay, if I just believed, or excuse me, let me put it this way, my anxiety in this moment, whether it's anxiety about kids, whether it's anxiety about finances, a variety of different things, if I just, mm-hmm. if I, what this is revealing to me is actually deep down in my heart of hearts, I don't love Jesus. Is that, right, is that a right. fair, uh, yeah, kind of, yeah, uh, yeah. practical or, or, example? Or, or, that I don't, or, or take the Piper quote that I read a, a minute ago. If the root cause of anxiety is the failure to trust all that God promised, then maybe I could, I could go to the promises of God and that should take care of it 100%. So mm. I'm not saying that what you believe uh, has no impact on your anxiety or your emotional difficulties. What I'm saying is that it's part of the process by which we cultivate our bodies. Like, theology is vital for really uh, stewarding our bodies uh, towards um, um, holiness and wholeness, let's say. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's part of the process. So I, the word erases is key for me. It's not like I can just say a mantra of a particular biblical text, and that ought to erase my emotional problems. Um, so, again, my motivation for saying it this way is I want to um, increase the sort of compassion on someone who's really stuck in a deep emotional rut and say, why is this Bible verse not working? As if it's supposed to be this uh, incantation which which waves it away. Mm-hmm. Um there's more involved to really embodying and, and, and sort of getting the Word of God deep into our souls where it becomes rooted and where we um, our bodies flourish because we're planted um, in the Word, or the Word is planted in us, I should say. 
So good. So good. All right. Uh, are you ready for four? number four? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> number four, uh, fourth myth, depression and anxiety are simply a chemical imbalance. So this is the opposite of myth number two, which was that they're simply a spiritual issue. Um, sometimes those opposites actually reinforce each other. Um, what I was saying earlier about that table, you're, you're sitting across from someone and they're trying to, um, you know, decide whether to comfort or correct you. Well, they also might be trying to decide how bad it is to see if they sh should suggest some sort of uh, SSRI, which is uh, a selective uh, serotonin uh, reuptake inhibitor. Mm. Um, so there is a pervasive myth that mental illness is simply a chemical imbalance. Like the drug companies have really, really sold this and oversold it. Um, if you go to Harvard Medical and type in what uh, what causes mental illness or, or maybe just uh, search for chemical imbalance theory, um, it, it, you, you can find it on knowledgeable sites like that everywhere. That's not actually what causes mental illness. Uh, it's false. In fact, here's a, a psychiatrist, Ronald Pease, I think Pies, maybe Pies, let's say that. Um, he was clinical professor of psychiatry at Tufts University and lecturer on psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. And he said this, in truth, the chemical imbalance notion was always kind of an urban legend, never a seriously propounded, uh, never a theory seriously propounded by well-informed psychiatrists. I stand by my claim that no respected representatives of the profession seriously asserted a simple chemical imbalance theory of mental illness in general. In the past 30 years, I don't believe I've ever heard a knowledgeable and well-trained psychiatrist make such a preposterous claim except perhaps to mock it. Hmm. Now, I'm reading that to you uh, for the shock value of the quote. Um, you know, there's, I'm not saying that chemicals are, are not involved. <laughs> um, yeah. uh, horm hormones and neurotransmitters and serotonin are involved. Uh, but what I'm saying is if you think that depression and anxiety are simply chemical imbalances, you have not got the whole picture. It's rarely just one thing, just like our spiritual uh, lives are. Hmm. The problem with the myth, from my perspective, is that it pr produces a sort of helplessness, but also a sort of unawareness to the other contextual frames that go into mental health problems. I mean, if you sit down with someone who's experiencing anxiety or depression, Start asking questions about their childhood. Start asking questions about how stressful their life is right now. Um, mental health challenges happen. Uh, the, the single biggest point in anybody's life where those challenges happen is college. And the reason that they happen in college is because there's a ton of extra stress. Like you're, you're experiencing like five major life events at once. <laughs> you know, like new job, new move, new social connections, uh, new challenge with school. And those stresses are, are really, really significant. And so it's, it's no surprise that a lot of people get into uh, spirals of anxiety when they go off to college. Mm -hmm. And so you really need to have a better informed view of the components that go into mental illness rather than just saying it's a chemical imbalance. Um, so I, I'll probably avoid saying a word on medication. I have some thoughts on medication. but That I'm was going to be my next question. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I... I, I, I actually have thoughts written down here that I could summarize, but um, I've become more reticent to, to, to share those. Um, there's some good books out there. Uh, if you want to read Johan Hari, he's put his opinions on, on medication in print. Um, uh, but it's, it's, a, 
it's an area which is developing. I'll just say that right now. Um, it, I'm, I am, uh, I will say that I think medication is an element of common grace for mm-hmm. so many people and it, it prevents, um, it prevents suicide, but I don't think that we should look at it as the silver bullet, um, for, for fixing mental health. It's the issue is just a lot more complex than that. Hmm. But I think what you say is so helpful because it seems like you're trying to get us out of these kind of two paths when it comes to sitting down with someone who's dealing with anxiety or depression or an addiction or whatever it may be. This kind of one solution, Mm -hmm. which is like, oh, is this just a simplistic spiritual solution? And then if not, Mm -hmm. then is this simply just get the right medication and it will be solved? Mm -hmm. And kind of the physical and the the spiritual is nicely divided. Sorry, I'm interrupting. But the thing to notice about that is that for many Christians, the purity of the spiritual problem is maintained by saying it might be one or the other. Mm-hmm. Like, like it's 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 uh, sort of uh, let's call it, call it disorienting for someone to realize that the spiritual problem involves physical components, <laughs> hmm. like as if God is interested in the physical world. Um, that's one of the things that I try and stress in the book is. You know, Romans 8 says that the spirit of the spirit who raised Jesus from the dead will bring life to your mortal body. Like, like, I think that's the core task of the spirit in the Old Testament is he's the life giver. Um, like the spirit can change your neural pathway. He can he, he can do what he wants in your body. But then as you go on to the uh, in Romans 8, it, it says uh, we who have the spirit, the, the first fruits of the spirit. Um, like creation, are groaning, uh, uh, awaiting the redemption of our bodies. And so there's an already not yet aspect to what the Spirit is doing in our bodies. But to preserve the spiritual issue versus physical issue distinction sort of pre- preserves the purity of it. It, it, it says, it says uh, oh, there are some issues which are just about your thoughts or just about your beliefs. And I'm saying no. Every thought you have runs down a neural pathway, and every feeling you feel involves hormones and, and, and uh, neurotransmitters. Mm. So. Wow, so good. So, sorry to interrupt you there. I, no, no, that was fine. That I'm was just, fine. I'm, I'm kinda, I feel like I've had too much coffee today or something. So. <laughs> no, no, that was great. Please keep interrupting me. We would much rather hear from, <laughs> from you than myself. Uh, okay, well, anything else that you want to say about that before before we move on? I know there's much more that we could talk about. Yeah, I, I guess maybe the only thing I would say there is that um, it is it is a tremendous uh, um, grief to me that there are, are, are so many people who are stuck very, very deep in, in mental health issues. And um, I hope they don't feel hopeless about that as if they have done something fundamentally wrong. Um, I mean, I have very, very close loved ones who um, have, uh, have these sorts of difficulties that are, I mean, when you, when you talk about, um, you know, severe OCD or, or bipolar or schizophrenia, um, you know, these are, these are things that really cause a lot of people to, to question the goodness of, of God in it. And I, I want to just express my uh, empathy and compassion for people who are in those sorts of situations and also um, point out that, you know, I, I, the, re- the, the end of Romans 8 is so therapeutic to me to read it about 
um, how our bodies are groaning. We, we share in the curse on the ground. We're waiting the redemption of our bodies, but there's still, there's nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ. Mm-hmm. And um, that God subjected the world to the curse that it's in, in hope, um, in hope that, that, that collectively we would all turn toward God and, and turn toward each other and bear uh, up each other in this, in the midst of the suffering that is not worth comparing to the glory, which is going to be revealed. So um, mm. I just, yeah. I hope that uh, people are affirmed in their struggling um, and in their, and their suffering um, and um, hear just a word of hope that, that God is with us in it and he will redeem it and he will rescue us from it. Yeah. Man. So good. It's such a beautiful hope. Okay, I, do we have one more, Matthew? We got one more, yeah. Okay. Uh, the, fifth myth, the fifth myth is you should be able to change your emotions right now. Um, mm. As if changing your emotion is like raising your arm. Um, and I think some of what I've said already, I, I just do not see emotions as a simple choice like that. Um, the, the classic way of conceiving this is that there's a difference between choices and actions and um, what uh, they would call passions. Uh, so the word for action is something that an agent does. It's a, it's a, it's a chosen thing, like raising your arm would be a passion. It comes from the word patience, which, which means that someone who is passive. Um, and so the classic way of talking about emotions is that we are passive. They happen to us, but we're not entirely passive because, um, you know, how we've formed ourselves or how the world has formed us or how God has formed us make a difference in how we react. So, you know, I could, uh, I, I'm thinking of my um, seven-year-old. Um, I took her to a science fair when she was three and had her hold a hissing cockroach, right? Um, so she just loves bugs. Like, she's just not afraid. When, a, when, when she sees a bug, she picks it up. Um, so she's been formed to react emotionally to bugs in a way that's very different even for me. Um, uh, I don't like bugs as much as she does. So, so we're passive, but we're not um, completely out of control. Uh, but the point is, um, the myth is you should you should be able to change your emotions right now. Um, the yeah. truth is, you have hope for change both now and in the resurrection of our bodies. So, again, I'll go back to my analogy. It's it's like uh, choosing your emotion is like cultivating a garden. Um, there's genes involved. There's how they express based on your experience. There's current experiences of stressors, there's thinking, there's acting and choosing, and your choices act back on you. And then there's God's care, the things that the Spirit does and enables you to see or to do or to be um, without his, pow- his power. But the garden metaphor, I think, has two lessons. One is um, adjusting our expectations that change is slow and that we may not entirely be free of the sort of suffering that we have internally. But then also that we can take control and ownership over what we can control, that we can tend our garden, we can uh, recognize what's going on inside, we can talk to others about it, we can take action on it, and we also can hope in God, um, which is what I mentioned at the end end of Romans uh, 8. Um, Hope is not for something that's seen, but it's for what's uh, unseen, and we can wait with that sort of expectant patience. So I'm trying to expand the toolbox that Christians have um, for uh, 
for dealing with their emotional states, for, for coping with them, for coming to terms with them, for hoping in God in the midst of them. But it's not just like raising your arm. Um, that these are things that that uh, um, that happen, and um, and we have only some control as we cultivate our bodies. So, uh, this is uh, once again a very complicated question, and mm-hmm. I've read your book, and so I know there's a complicated answer. But I would love to hear you talk about this. Uh, what is an emotion? Yeah. So. I avoided giving a definition of emotion largely because emotion has been divided between the philosophers and the psycho- uh, psychologists. So William James classic definition is that um, emotion is a feeling of bodily changes. So notice in that definition that you're, you're, we're privileging what's happening in our sympathetic nervous system. So I'm experiencing an emotion when I feel that my body has reacted in some way to, to something. Um, philosophers are frustrated by that because they say, no, emotions are richly intelligent. So like if I feel panic, um, you know, because I've just received a phone call that, um, you know, my wife's flight has been hijacked, for instance, um, the ideas actually matter. Like (laughs) I got the emotion because of that cognitive message that I just received. Mm -hmm. And so the debate has been like between, is it feeling or is it some sort of judgment that I'm making? Uh, emotion is feeling, emotion is judgment. And my, my model is actually a model of how those things work. So I think basically an emotion is a sort of, um, is a sort of low level, uh, non-reflective, uh, judgment. It's a combination of a non-reflective judgment and, uh, the sort of corresponding reaction that happens in our bodies. Um, so that, involves certain internal feelings, but it also involves action tendencies, like, um, you know, where I might jump back or startle if I see a snake or something like that. Um, but those, but emotions are uh, a bit ambiguous because it's a bit like pain too. Um, I can feel a pain, but there's also ways in which pain can become unconscious. Um, this is a controversial th- uh, <laughs> thing, but, uh, I think it's possible to have unfelt pain. Like right now I'm, I'm becoming aware that I have a low grade headache and I have not been aware of it in this conversation until just right now when I turn my attention to my body. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's probably more complicated than what you wanted to know, but no, um, that's helpful. I've got, I've got some diagrams where I have tried to, outline like flowchart of how emotion works i'm trying to evaluate the components of an emotion i think an emotion involves a unconscious evaluation some sort of bodily reaction and then my awareness of that reaction maybe that's the simplest way to put it okay and and another complicated question if you're ready for it i know you've got a little bit of a headache Uh, and i know we're getting to the end here we've gone over our time so we're, we're wrapping up here but uh, is yeah. there such thing as is a bad emotion or a sinful emotion? Because as one reads the psychological literature, there can be a lot of criticism towards uh, yeah. religion and how religion has viewed the emotions and the harm yeah. that that view has done from a psychological standpoint. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, that's good. Uh, there's two clarifications I would want to make here before I answer the question. One would be, um, let's distinguish between sin and sinful. So, 
um, if I'm feeling, you know, angry about something, have I sinned? I, I want to say, um, I, I want to say that I would re- reserve the word sin for an act of transgression, which means that emotion by definition is ruled out of sin. Um, because, um, so make sure that the listeners hear me very carefully here. What I'm saying is a sin is a choice. And since emotion is not a choice, it is not a sin. But I'm not saying that emotion is not sinful. So I'm, I'm distinguishing between an act of sin versus sinful. <laughs> so that's the first distinction. I think emotion may actually be sinful. Um, I'm trying to remember the second distinction that I was that I was going to make. I'll, I'll, maybe I'll come back to it here. Oh yeah, the, the second thing is I would say that. Um, the meaning of an emotion is bound up in the context of the emotion. And so I wouldn't say that all, like all anger, for instance, is sinful. Rebecca DeYoung has some really interesting work on that. Um, mm. She would, uh, I think she might say something like, sure, not all anger is sinful. It's just hard to find non-sinful sinful anger in real life or something like that. <laughs> mm. uh, you know, I think you find it in, in Jesus, but maybe not anyone else or something like that. Mm. But um but so, yeah, in, like, I think we tend to, uh, and this is where the criticism comes from, as evangelicals, we tend to um, say that anger especially, but anxiety also, um, we tend to sort of group those as bad emotions. Uh, we even call them negative emotions. By negative, we just mean that they're against something. But, um, but yeah, so th- those can kind of become things we just don't want around. We, we don't want those. Uh, lust may also be in that category too, like mm-hmm. the desire, sexual desire. Let's put it more neutrally. Uh, mm-hmm. Could be in that category too. But um, every emotion, you have to uh, evaluate it within the context uh, that it's in. So it, it, it has a personal context, it has a social context. And so if I'm angry, um, you know, I, I might be justly angry because someone is threatening to do uh, something harmful to my daughter or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I certainly wouldn't call that sinful uh, anger. But if I'm angry uh, because, you know, I thought I deserved, um, you know, something that I didn't deserve and, and it was withheld from me, then I, I think that's clearly a sinful emotion. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. Yes, I do think emotion can be sinful. I don't think it can be an act of sin, but it depends on the context that we uh, experience it in, which is why formation is important. It's important to be the sort of people who feel the sorts of feelings that, that uh, are godly, hmm. are concerned about the same things that God is concerned with. Very helpful, and a, a very helpful answer to an extremely complicated and big question. So thank you for, for parsing that out for us. Well, like I said, we're getting to the end of our time here. We wanted to do a lightning round with you, but there was just too much good content. We had to keep moving forward. <laughs> I, I, I didn't take a breath. I didn't leave you any space, right? <laughs> oh, man. I mean, so much good stuff. We, we, we wanted to keep talking about it. We didn't want to stop. So just in, in closing, we've, we've gone through the five myths. Is, is there anything else that you would like to say or anything that you would like to, to leave us with? Yeah, I mean, I, I think um, I would just encourage listeners, if this is an area of concern for you, either with yourself or with loved ones, um, to, to get on the path to learning. I mean, I'm sure that there's a lot of things that I've just said that you don't understand or don't fully understand. 
and you probably don't understand maybe your own mental health or, or that of others, but um, some compassionate curiosity would be really, really helpful um, to start moving towards greater understanding. Understanding is a process. Um, and there's so many times in my marriage, for instance, where I've apologized for something and I'm like, I think that I'll know later why that was so bad. <laughs> but part of the apology is a commitment to move towards greater understanding. And I think it, that, that can be a sort of long-term goal for us is to how can I understand uh, those who are suffering around me better? And so maybe that involves a reading list. Maybe that involves, you know, uh, biweekly meetings or something like that. But get on a path to learning. But then the other thing is um, for people who, you know, are struggling, um, take off your mask to someone you can trust. Um, you know, I, I think that a lot of us are afraid that we're going to get rejected if we're if we open up about um, about who we are. And, you know, there's risk there. There's real danger. Mm -hmm. But um, if you can find someone who's who's safe to talk about that, it, it takes you um out of isolation into the, the, the healing community that the church is supposed to be. Um, everything that's true about you, God all, already knows that he loves you. And um, I hope that your church can be that sort of place too, where uh, we can really, really be ruthlessly honest about who we are and where we're coming from and that um, we can be loved and, and uh, accepted because we're forgiven. We're, uh, we're just fellow members of the body of Christ who, who are covered by his blood and, um, and exist to, to love and serve others because he loves uh, us and he served us by giving his life as a ransom for many. Such a beautiful word to end on. Well, Dr. Lapine, we have kept you way longer than we agreed upon. We are so sorry, but we are so grateful for all of your time. There are so many things. I can't wait to go back and listen to this and just meditate on some of the things and some of the realities that you talked about, but it's been so helpful and it's just so encouraging to sit down and to talk and to think theologically about psychology, that these are conversations that we can have in the midst of the church, in the midst of faith community, that there are Christians who have thought deeply about these things and have interacted with leading voices uh, in psychology, that we don't have to choose one or the other, uh, that rather our Christian faith can uh, bring in and also inform a lot of modern psychology. And yeah. so it's, it's just so helpful to be able to have this conversation. I just want to thank you. Yeah. Well, Brad and John Mark, thanks so much for having me on. It was uh, kind of fun to have the conversation.